Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. Um, and today uh, is we talking about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, you know, uh, I I will was not following this um, super closely uh, over the last six or so weeks uh, as it was going on. Uh, not that that stopped YouTube and other sites from, you know, pumping that stuff uh, into my feed as much as possible. Um, but now that it has concluded uh, with the kind of surprise verdict here uh, with with Depp winning, um, you know, winning uh, a case like this in the U.S. after losing it in the U.K., which is like not a very normal thing to happen. You know, a lot of stuff has been coming out about this. And, and, and I think that uh, it's uh, there's EJ right there. I'm, I'm going to invite you to speak in one second here. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's important to note that uh, uh, one important point that I had not been aware of before uh, was that the jury and this is like normal for a civil case, but the jury was not sequestered. And so with all of the kind of social media uh, attacks on her specifically, like all, like they were able to see all of that stuff at any time. And so, um, it, and, and, and look, Hello? like I said, like it's a civil trial. You're not going to see that happen that often. Uh, but still, Hello? Uh, yep. You're here. Yep. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. How are you? You know, I'm fine. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. So I'm just going to finish the, the intro here and then, uh, I'll kick it over to you. But you know, like I was saying, um, it, Without being sequestered, uh, without the jury really uh, facing really any kind of isolation from this social media storm, I think that that is like an important point uh, to, to emphasize here when you're looking at this result. I mean, even someone like me who wasn't following it very closely, I was I was still pretty shocked to see uh, Depp win. But uh, EJ, so thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, um, and and thanks for the. Thanks for the work that you've been doing on this. Um, you're, you've written a, a, a number of really great pieces, I think, on not, not only on you know the the direct result here, of course, uh, but also like the ramifications. And you you have a piece that came out yesterday. Men always win. Survivors sickened by the Amber Heard verdict, and I thought that that really kind of emphasized uh, the stakes and the consequences here. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that one just to kind of start us off to kind of, you know, uh, uh, get us going as far as like what this trial, um, what the ramifications of it are beyond just the celebrity divorce? Sure. Um, that piece specifically or just sort of how I got into covering this because it was totally by accident. Yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it in general. And maybe as you're talking about how you got into covering it, you yeah. can talk about the trial a little bit for those of us who are like a little bit less familiar uh, with the details. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of two related things. Um, so I actually I cover internet culture and TikTok. I don't cover like um, the legal system or or celebrity trials or anything like that. Um, so just by virtue of my job, I'm on TikTok a lot, and I started getting uh, just a constant, unrelenting onslaught of memes for the trial from the trial about a week or two in, 
um, that were getting millions and millions and millions of views. And this was, you, you know, the, I, I don't know if you guys know how like the TikTok for you page works, but basically like you, you have to engage with a certain type of content in order for the algorithm to feed you more of that content. And I had not, you know, searched for any Johnny Depp trial content. I, I, don't, I don't think I'd given any indication to the algorithm that I was interested in this stuff, but I was getting it regardless. And it was, you know, consistently pro Johnny Depp, consistently making fun of Amber Heard, you know, her looks, her makeup, you know, making fun of the allegations that she was making on the stand. And it just, it started to get more and more disturbing um, when it became clear to me that people, you know, big creators were profiting off of this trial and sort of like commodifying it in various ways, like selling merch and, you know, pivoting to like doing like Twitch live streaming and commentary of the trial. And also that um, the memes were getting a lot darker and and more disturbing. I think the first story that I wrote about this trial or one of the first was about a cat video that I had seen um, that was sort of lip syncing to the audio of Amber Heard's testimony of being hit by Johnny Depp, just basically showing cats dressed up as Johnny Depp and Amber Heard um, hitting each other. Uh, and my takeaway from that the, and the fact that these videos were getting millions and millions of views was, oh, this is not going to be good for survivors. Like, this trial is not going to be good for survivors, regardless of what the verdict is. And that's kind of been um, my area of interest in covering this whole thing. Less so, like, who the guilty party is, um, which was also not really at stake in this case in general. It was a defamation case. But... Um, what this trial and what sort of the fervor and frenzy around it means for, you know, survivors, the press, women in general, if that makes any sense. No, no, no. It did, yeah, I mean, it definitely does. And I think that, you know, if we can just stay on kind of like TikTok and stuff. The way that this stuff was being like pushed and promoted uh, to people, like I was, I, I, I was saying in the beginning, like I had no interest in this trial. I wasn't following up, following it at all. Yet still, it was getting like pumped into my newsfeed on almost every single uh, medium, um, and I'm sure that you noticed that as well, right? Yes, uh, that's that's kind of what struck me about it. Like I had not demonstrated any interest whatsoever in following this trial. So why is the TikTok algorithm like assuming that I'm going to engage with this content? And I think the answer is ultimately, you know, complicated. I think it has a lot to do with the, how the algorithm itself and, and how it works in general. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just very shocked by the fact that regardless of whether or not I was engaging with this content, all of my social feeds were promoting it to me. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that it was being pushed so hard? On TikTok specifically? Yeah, let's say, let's, let's, let's start with TikTok. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it was, it was, it was being promoted, uh, like I saw it on YouTube cause I use YouTube more than TikTok, but uh, mm -hmm. Certainly on TikTok, it was being promoted. Like, like, why do you think that it was being hyped up so much? Why do you think that it was being pushed so hard? Well, I think the TikTok algorithm tends to reward really incendiary content. Um, that's just something I've noticed in my reporting on the platform for the past few years. Regardless of whether, like, the actual content of the video is legitimate or not, or whether, like, the information being shared is true or not, like, it doesn't really care about that. It doesn't vet that in any, in any material way. It just kind of boosts anything that it thinks is most likely to get engagement. And that's usually like very sensationalistic, um, you know, often highly biased and, and highly misinformation laden 
content. Um, and I think that's what this case is sort of the ultimate example of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, it, like you're saying, I mean, the, these, um, I, I remember reading an article um, or, or, a, or a, a number of articles just about how many followers people were getting just by promoting the trial, right? Just by doing these, this yeah. content, like you were saying, they were selling merch. Um, it, it, that, that's certainly something that it seems like that's an escalation even in something that was already ongoing, right? Yeah, that was actually the first story I did um, was about was about the Etsy merch, uh, the people making like the mugs, the mega pint memes with the with the mugs and, you know, putting like justice for Johnny Depp and plastering like the Pirates logo all over like T-shirts and underwear and, and shit like that. Um, yeah, I, I think that people very quickly realized when they saw how many views this type of content was getting that pivoting to covering this trial could be immensely lucrative. I mean, there, these, there were people, there were Etsy creators that I spoke to who sold out like thousands of items in the span of just like a few hours. Um, and they were thrilled about this. You know, they, they weren't really considering like the implications of what it means to commodify uh, you know, domestic abuse or sexual assault allegations. They they were just thrilled that they had the opportunity to like publicly stand this person, and that they could make money off of it at the same time. Yeah, and then we've seen kind of what it's what it's turned into, um, where where you know it just kind of it seemed to really push public opinion in one direction, um, mm -hmm. and it, that. That also seems kind of new to me. That seems like a kind of an, a, an escalation in the use of social media as far as, as something like this kind of like narrow and small scale. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of discussion, especially earlier on in the trial. And I think Kurd's legal team actually did a study um, even before this trial um, about whether or not, like how much of the pro-dep activity on social media was inorganic like how much of it was driven by bots and and they found that like a you know a significant portion not the majority but like a, a significant portion of the activity was and i think that's worth considering like the prospect of how much of the pro dep activity was inauthentic certainly at times on twitter you know considering how often amber turd or like justice for johnny depp like those hashtags trended it, it definitely crossed my mind but i honestly don't even like that question is less interesting to me than the question of, well, why are these clearly authentic stands hopping on this trial and spreading this like incredibly misogynistic rhetoric and jumping on this narrative to the degree that they have? Like I've been reporting on, you know, I've been, re I've been reporting on sexual abuse and, and domestic violence for quite some time. I've never seen anything to anything like this. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that they jumped on? I mean, like you said, like you've been reporting on it for a while. You, I mean, you must have some ideas as to as as to what's going on, right? Yeah, I have a few ideas. <laughs> None of them you speak particularly well of the direction in which our society is moving. Um, I think it's a few things. I mean, for, for this trial specifically, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like it, it seems to me like it didn't really capture the attention of the mainstream like a lot of the pro-depth sentiment was very much limited to like the most hardcore stands and mras for years 
right? Like it, it didn't really filter down to normies until this trial. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think, you know, the fact that this trial was broadcast, which is not at all typical for trials where domestic violence allegations are at the heart of them. Um, I think that played a huge role. Um, I also think the fact that we were sort of long overdue for a backlash to the Me Too movement is probably the primary reason why this has been getting so much attention. You know, Amber Heard, people like to frame her as having jumped on the Me Too bandwagon, so to speak, but her allegations actually predate Me Too and, and the New York Times story about Harvey Weinstein. I think she's, she came forward in 2016. Um, the op-ed that she wrote was in 2018, so that was you know definitely in the midst of the movement and when the movement was sort of at its strongest. But she wasn't really a like a Me Too bandwagon jumper. If anything, she, was, she kind of set a precedent um, before Me Too was even really a thing. But I think that, you know, it's been five years since Me Too. We saw a lot of traction after Weinstein, after Kevin Spacey, after Louis C.K., after all of these men kind of, you know, started toppling down. And then it went basically silent. And I think there's a good reason for that. I think there was sort of this undercurrent of sentiment of whether or not women should automatically, reflexively be believed all the time. And the conclusion that a lot of people have reached, if my mentions are any indication, is that no, they they shouldn't. In fact, we should. It's the standard is no longer. We we I think the standard for a lot of people is is that we should assume that women are lying or have something to gain from making these allegations to a wider audience. Um, and I think that's been going on for a few years, but it really has come to the surface with this trial. Yeah, like this trial is like the ultimate moment of like that 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 growing backlash is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. I I think we were well overdue for it, and I think this was kind of just all of the stars aligned, right? Like you have this beloved star who occupies like this very nostalgic position in the public imagination. Everybody loves pirates. Everybody loves Edward Scissorhands. He's accused of all these heinous acts, and people didn't want to believe you know, anything that was coming out of Amber Heard's mouth. And she is, you know, not a perfect victim in a lot of ways, which we can talk about. And, you know, those factors sort of coalescing made it the perfect time for people who were already skeptical about the Me Too movement and already skeptical about the very minimal advances, honestly, that women and survivors have made as a result um, to sort of latch on to this and to latch on to Johnny as like a totem of a falsely accused male and to latch on to Amber as, as a totem of a hysterical, you know, lying female victim. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's actually talk a little bit about that uh, kind of the perfect victim trope, because I, I certainly saw that thrown around a lot. Um, and it, it seemed like it should have been secondary to what she was saying, but it seemed like it really just took over. Uh, mm -hmm. the entire, almost like the entire trial, or at least the way that the trial was being portrayed uh, in on social media and even in the media it, itself. Um, I, that that seems like that was a pretty calculated move uh, by Depp's people. You, you're talking about how, you know, this is, has been, this was an ongoing issue. Um, this was, a, this was an, like, this has been going on for many, many years before it came to this point of the trial. Um, 
like how calculated do you think that was on their part? Uh, and, and, you know, the, is this kind of a chicken or the egg moment? I mean, did it kind of just kind of start feeding and snowballing uh, with, with the social media attention? I think it was immensely calculated. I mean, just the, the effort to sort of paint Amber Heard as like this lying, you know, bitch, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, That's yeah exactly. True. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think it was immensely calcul- calculated. I don't think it was particularly uh, unique um, on their part. I mean, in speaking with uh, domestic violence survivor advocates over the past few days, it seems like this is an extremely common strategy to discredit um, people who make allegations of abuse uh, towards their partners. I mean, the, the moment that really stood out to me in the trial was when um, Depp's team called Dr. Shannon Curry, um, who I believe is a forensic psychologist, to the stand um, to diagnose Amber Heard with borderline personality disorder and with narcissistic personality disorder, which are two incredibly controversial, uh, you know, very widely misunderstood diagnoses. People, there are a lot of people who don't even believe that narcissistic personality disorder is a legitimate diagnosis, but regardless. Um, and she very heavily intimated on the stand that, you know, borderline people who struggle with borderline personality disorder are more likely to abuse their partners, uh, and more likely to lie and make up, uh, sexual abuse claims and and domestic abuse claims for attention. There's no evidence to support this. In fact, it's a pretty widely refuted, aspect of borderline personality disorder, but I didn't really see Amber Heard's team like really aggressively poking holes in that. Um, and the media didn't really put, I mean, there were a couple stories being like, here's how, you know, Johnny Depp's, you know, team mischaracterized, you know, borderline personality disorder, but it was like two stories. Like I, I didn't really see the media trying to refute this, even though it would have been very easy to do so. Also, I mean, the contention that people with borderline personality disorder are more likely to abuse their partners. I've seen studies where it says, if anything, they're more likely to be victims because of their, you know, psychological vulnerabilities. So that to me was sort of the moment that crystallized, oh, this is their strategy. Like, this is what they're going to do. They're going to say that she has these mental health issues and that in turn is going to discredit her in the eyes of the jury and the American public. And it worked ridiculously well. Um, to be honest, like, I, I just really didn't see anybody with even like a rudimentary understanding of mental health because I'm not like a psychologist or anything. I just, you know, have an interest in this, like as a journalist and somebody who covers these issues, but I didn't see anybody with like a rudimentary understanding of mental health really saying, Hey, this is like fucked up, not only to do this to Amber Heard, but to say this about people with mental illness or to survivors in general, to try to discredit, like use mental illness against them to discredit them. But it's an extremely common tactic among defense attorneys um, in, in these types of cases, as I've learned. Yeah, just like kind of like running this this playbook, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, to, uh, to make her yeah. seem like, I mean, because they also made her seem like the aggressor, right? Like that was like, yes. that, you know, one thing I really noticed is that uh, as, as the trial kind of wore on, I was seeing a lot of people starting to pop up like, you know, on Facebook and kind of, you know, like older people uh, starting to really like repeat the same things that, that, uh, you know, I was hearing about from, 
from TikTok and from other sites like that. And it does seem like that idea of that that's what that that's what the trial was really about really started to come through. Whether or not like that was the truth, like no longer mattered. Uh, what it was is that Depp was Depp was actually the victim, um, right. which was which was really wild to see, considering that we were seeing video from their relationship that like automatically disproved that. Right? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> It's it's crazy to think about, I mean, but it's also a very common tactic. I mean, it's it's a tactic that's used by abusers and, and defense teams all the time. It's a strategy known as DARVO, which I, I believe stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender, um, which is basically if somebody makes allegations against the abuser, the abuser says, well, no, I don't think so, because um, you're actually the abuser here. It's extremely common. It's an extremely common way to discredit um, accusers. And there was also this idea of mutual abuse that I saw circulating on social media uh, over the past few weeks. Like the idea that both Depp and Heard were abusive, physically abusive to each other. And and I, I don't want to diminish the fact that like Heard has said, you know, has admitted on tape to hitting Johnny Depp. Like like that seems it seems irrefutable that both of them were violent to each other. So I understand why people sort of jumped to this idea that th- that this was a mutually abusive dynamic in the relationship. But when you actually speak to domestic violence survivor advocates, they say, well, no, the idea that mutual abuse is a thing is really kind of a false proposition at its heart because while it may be true that both parties may be physically abusive to each other, there is always one party who is the primary aggressor. There is always one party who has you know the upper hand in the power dynamic and who's really pulling the strings here and the other person may resort to physical violence or may resort to emotional abuse sort of as a way, as, as a coping mechanism basically, or as a self-defense mechanism throughout the relationship. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because I mean, when you look at the dynamics at play in this trial and you, when you look at the dynamics central to this relationship, it's, it's not a, it's unquestionable like who had the most power in this relationship. Um, and that and that was Johnny Depp. Um, he was the person who was bringing the suit against Amber Heard in the first place. I, he's the person who had a lot more money. He's the person who had a lot more clout. He's the person who had a lot more power. And you see it over and over again. He would reiterate this to her, you know, in text messages and conversations, like on the stands. You know, she would not have the roles that she had in Hollywood if it weren't for me. So he was very aware of this. And I was pretty shocked um, that people who were sort of you know, unquestionably digesting this narrative of mutual abuse were not aware of it, you know, not even considerate of these of this power dynamic at all, because it just seems so obvious to me. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was definitely strange to see. And, and I mean, you know, there were it wasn't just, you know, people, you know, on on different social media channels. I mean, there were like a lot of prominent writers who were writing about this saying that, you know, that uh, that heard was obviously lying. Uh, that that Depp, you know, like I've seen like since the the verdict came out, people saying, uh, you know, maybe maybe I think uh, Michael Cohen, uh, one uh, a columnist I think for the Boston Globe or somewhere like that, uh, said, you know, maybe maybe what happened is that um, he was defamed. And again, like I think that we should you know remind people that we're talking about like. I think it's 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 like a, a not even a full sentence. It's just like half a sentence in an in, in an op-ed, right? I mean, th- this is what he's saying uh, defamed him to the tune of like ten ten million dollars. 
What's half a sentence in the, in the op-ed? The fact that this was a defamation, a defamation trial like or was, the fact that, that the mutual abuse is... Yeah, that was the defamation he was accusing her of. Was that, right? Was it was that he was the he was accusing her of falsely acu- of perpetuating a hoax is what his legal team said that that he had abused her. Yes, and his and his defense was essentially no, 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 she abused me. Right, right. But it was but it was it was it was like a throwaway line in the in the, in the article, right? Like it wasn't. I mean, like that's my understanding of it, right? It wasn't even like a huge thing. Yeah, I would I would have to read the article to fully understand the context, but it's I mean it it does seem like a lot of the coverage has sort of diminished uh, a lot of the aspects of this trial that I think are pretty important. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about the ramifications of the verdict, um, and maybe we can use your article from yesterday as a jumping off point. I mean, you, yeah, so sure. you 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 talk in this article about how you know it seems like there's going to be this chilling effect. Um, from the uh, from uh, from the from the verdict, and that and that a lot of uh, survivors are really concerned about that, and and that they're worried about it for good reason. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you heard and 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 the way that people are feeling about this? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I think a lot of the survivors that I spoke to felt that there would be a chilling effect to this trial, regardless of how the verdict turned out, right? I mean, at this point, so much damage has been done. Heard has been so thoroughly slandered in in the media. She's she's not going to get any work after this. Most likely, she has like almost you know basically negligible support. Like there's, it makes a lot of sense why survivors who have similar stories as hers would not want to go through that themselves, um, regardless of how the verdict turned out. You know, even if it was in her favor. And I think in some ways. If the verdict had been in her favor, that could have arguably, you know, been just as damaging because I think there would have been a tremendous backlash among sort of the MRA, you know, right wing contingent being like, this is, you know, this is woke society taking over. Like this is rationalism has gone out the window. We just unquestioningly believe victims now. And that would have probably fueled a lot of, you know, backlash on that side, too. That said, I do think that this verdict was ultimately a lot more damaging because of the potential uh, legal implications it might have, which I think are sort of still being unpacked now. I mean, even when I talked to a lawyer about this yesterday, uh, she was like, I I have no idea what this means. Like, I don't know why the jury would rule in both of their would rule that both of them defamed each other. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I think a lot of this is confusing even to people who are paid to sort of weigh in on this kind of thing. But as a journalist and as somebody who reports on these types of stories like fairly often, I mean, it's definitely concerning to me that a survivor can come forward in a newspaper with an op-ed that she didn't even write. Like the ACLU basically like wrote the article for her and she edited it and and name their and not even like explicitly name their accuser, like refer to refer to their abuser anonymously and face legal ramifications to the tune of 10.5 million dollars as a result like that's that's very frightening to me um and i think it should be frightening to anybody who wants to hold anybody in power to account you know victims of all genders all age ranges um you know they sent a very clear message that if you know even if you have a great deal of evidence to support your story which i think she did 
that it doesn't matter that, you know, you're going to be punished for telling your story. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like, you know, uh, from what you've written about it, that there's there's just uh, a chilling effect feeling like 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 almost like a feeling of desperation. Right. I mean, I I, I don't want to put words in the mouths of, of the of the people that you spoke to, but that like when I was reading it, like that was the impression that I got. That's what it felt like when I was reading it. Oh, yeah. I spoke to one survivor advocate who said that, like, she'd spoken to hundreds of women who had been like, I was going to come forward in the press. I was going to, you know, press charges against my ex, but I am retracting my statement. I am pulling out of this case. Like, I do not want to go through this full stop. Like, it is not worth being financially ruined uh, over this. And I think that reaction is very sad, but very understandable. Um and I, I mean, the craziest thing to me was that domestic violence advocacy organizations are getting harassed over this. Like, just the idea that, like, I mean, if you consider it from, like, a, a depth stance perspective, like, they believe that he is a male survivor and that he is bringing light to, like, the underrepresented issue of, you know, male victim abuse, which is, you know, is a very un- underrepresented issue. And, you know, to an extent, it's understandable why they would feel that way. But to take that sentiment and to harness that into harassing advocacy organizations for the very victims you claim to support is just wild to me. So I, yeah, I, th- I think this is going to be terrible for survivors and for survivor advocates all around and, you know, arguably for the press as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, man, that's depressing. Um, I should also say, you know, when I posted that story, I, I was I was kind of shocked by this. Like when I when I made the point that like, hey, you know, people are pulling out of their court cases, people are retracting their statements. Like people are currently even now like being feeling like they're being silenced. I got so many messages being like, well, good because that'll weed out all of the false accusations against men that like are currently a scourge in our society. Like as if this is some hugely widespread problem that just isn't being dealt with. And it really drove home to me, like, there are so many men out there who think women are lying about this. When women have, as this case has demonstrated, absolutely nothing to gain and so much to lose for coming forward. Yeah, and even and even more now. Because yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like you said um, uh, that like men always win, which is also what I, you know, I, I, I titled this, uh, this essay. I mean, that is really, uh, the feeling I, I saw, you know, I mean, I mean, there were certain people who were celebrating there were certain people who were not celebrating, you know, you can put it that way. Like you had a house GOP judiciary, Kyle Rittenhouse, other right-wing figures who were happy and celebrating it. And then, and then you had, um, you know, uh, domestic violence, uh, advocates and, and other survivors, uh, you know, just talking about how upsetting that they, that they, that they found this. Uh, it has, it has been interesting to watch like the right wing kind of uh, grab onto this, obviously not exclusively. This isn't ex- mm-hmm. like, there, you know, this is not, this isn't exclusive, but uh, no. we, we have, we have seen that. And that's, that's that. I mean, like they're certainly sending a message, I guess you could put it that way. Right. The right wing. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I do wonder how much, you know, I, I think it's a lot of rational people's impulse if they have, you know, they're starting to develop an opinion about, you know, something that's controversial or something that's being, you know, widely debated that they check out, you know, what the people next to them are saying about it. Like, check out, like, who their ideological bedfellows are, so to speak. Like, just sort of as a gut check to see, like, if where you stand. Like, just, like, look at the opinions of people you respect. And, like, I think, I do wonder how many of these depth stands are actually doing that because they're in the company of people, like, I, I mean, when you're in the company of people like, like Ann Coulter or Kyle Rittenhouse or um, Donald Trump Jr., like, you should probably think twice about, about the stance you're taking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty it's, it's, it's pretty clear, like, why they are taking this stance, and you are, too, like you're saying. Like, it's good to, uh, it's, it's, it's good to, it's good to question that. Um, I, I, I do want to go back to, um, the, the TikTok, uh, the viral videos of, of people attacking her, but also, like, there were a lot of viral videos around people kind of replaying the trial in a lot of different ways, uh, kind of resetting the way uh like kind of doing like recaps um and as i said at the top like a lot of the jurors or the jurors were not sequestered and there was an article um like a month or two ago where you know one of one of the jurors was like talking about seeing this stuff like actually seeing it um while he was uh you know I, i think during jury selection he was still selected even though he had already uh seen some of this stuff and agreed with it um, that doesn't seem, I mean, wh- like, what do you do at that point though? Right. Because it's a civil trial. So, so wh- what do you think the right response is there? What do I think the right response is to what? Well, because, because it wasn't sequestered, but, but this was, um, so they weren't sequestered. Right. But they, um, but this stuff was all over the social media that they were consuming, and I think arguably you could say that it had an effect on how they were interpreting. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, first of all, I guess, could they even have like a mistrial at this point? But, but also like, what does that, what does that really mean? Um, for, uh, yeah. I mean, they're for, definitely going to appeal. I, uh, Amber Heard's lawyer has said that she, that she's going to appeal. I think that's probably going to be a major um, case you know, point of contention that they're going to make in the appeal. And I think that they would be right to do so. Um, I mean, the jury should have been sequestered. Like it was a hugely high profile trial. Juries are sequestered for, you know, far, far less emotional cases. I think, I think that there, you know, if I had to guess, I have no, I have no like grounds for this, but like, if I had to guess, I think that the judge probably, was not aware from the beginning just how highly charged and politicized this trial would be and just considered it, you know, a, a, a standard, you know, celebrity divorce case. Um, and and I think that was pretty remarkably short-sighted. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. It shouldn't have been broadcast and the jury should have been sequestered because I don't see how the vitriol against Amber Heard on, that is online right now could not have played a role in this verdict. Yeah, especially if they were, like, watching it, like, as it was happening, right? I mean, like, there's no way. Yeah, and how could you not? Like, as I was saying earlier, like, I watched this trial without even trying. So you can only imagine, like, the seven members of the jury were in the same situation as I was. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, they like, they were, uh, 
and 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 also like the amount of media attention i mean when you're at the center of something that's that intense as far as like media attention i'm sure that it it starts to affect how you're viewing all of it yeah for sure what do you think about media coverage actually in general um of of the case because uh you, you know as as you said and i know that i, I you know you do a lot of work that is based on social media but as far as like news media coverage of of the trial it seemed to be kind of a couple steps backward right it kind of seemed to be uh following behind as as this story was kind of driven by social media do you think that they mm-hmm. that they kind of dropped the ball on this do you think that the coverage of of the trial in in the kind of more mainstream news uh was was fair or effective or do you think that it was that, that this was a missed opportunity yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple different questions in there. I, I do think that it was, I think it was mixed. I've seen some very good coverage and some very smart coverage, and I think in some ways the media has sort of led the charge on, you know, pointing out just how fucked up, like, this all is um, and has played somewhat of a role in the tide turning a little bit. Um, like, when I started covering this trial, it was pretty much, like, 100% pro Johnny Depp in the media, like, all the time. And I don't think that's the case anymore. So I, I commend, you know, the media on certain publications. I think Vice has done a very good job covering this trial. I can shout them out. Um, I, I think NBC News has done a good job covering this trial. Like, I think certain publications have done a very good job sort of trying to correct the narrative. That said, I think especially at the very beginning, I think that a lot of publications made the mistake of not, and and it goes back to a larger problem in the media, right, which is that a lot of publications do not take social media seriously and don't have dedicated reporters covering TikTok or Twitter or YouTube or Instagram or, you know, any of the venues where any of these conversations are going on. So I think that the media was largely unaware of just how vitriolic the Uh, backlash against Amber Heard was and just how much misinformation was spreading about this trial and didn't really react accordingly. I I think in some ways they were probably, a lot of outlets were probably too late on to get on the ball and sort of like correct these rumors in real time. Like there was a point where it was a couple weeks ago, but like Amber Heard was on the stand and there were tweets that were getting like tens of thousands of reposts that she, you know, saying that she was doing coke on the stand, which was just, like, patently false and, like, honestly, like, a very narc take on, like, what was going on. Like, whoever was saying this, like, clearly had never been in the same room as someone doing coke in their lives. But it just kind of went uncorrected for a very long time. And I think that a lot of media, I think that's because a lot of media outlets either weren't aware of what was going on or were aware of it and thought incorrectly that to platform some of the more egregious misinformation about this trial would be worse than to directly refute it, if that makes any sense. So I I do think the media has made some mistakes here. Um, I think that they're largely the same mistakes that they make anytime there's a mass misinformation event. But I, I will say I have seen some good coverage that I have been happy to see. And, and also, I mean, I should say it was really scary at first. Like, I'll be honest, like a a big part of me didn't want to report on this trial at the very beginning because like just the enormous amount of backlash that anybody who expressed like even the slightest skepticism about the dominant narrative was getting, 
it's unnerving. And, you know, reporters don't want to deal with that. Editors don't want to put their reporters in the front lines of that for no reason. So I, I would find, I think that that probably did play a role in the fact that cov- like good coverage of this trial was very hard to come by at first and was very slow. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's 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 a good way to kind of segue here for the last couple of minutes, uh, just to just to start talking about um, some of the some some of like if, if we can do like a little bit of like future casting here almost. Right. Like, you know, looking forward, like what do you think that this is going to have? Uh, and, and, you know, this is just your opinion, obviously, but you've been you've been following this. And do you think that this is going to have a positive uh, effect on how these these trials are covered and how this kind of stuff is covered in the future um do you th- hmm. i mean because you're talking about like these lessons that, that that could be learned here do you think those lessons are being learned and you think that that is going to be the way that that things are going to be treated going forward you know that's a really good question it's it, it, i have to kind of resort to like my natural skepticism here like I, I kind of am of the opinion that institutions don't learn lessons about anything after they have, like, fuck-ups, you know? They kind of just have to keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and then they finally learn. I'd like to be proven wrong. Um, I would like to think that this will change the way we cover sexual abuse and, and domestic violence. And I, th- and I think also a huge part of it is, you know, we keep going back to this idea that this wasn't a sexual abuse trial, that this wasn't a domestic abuse trial. This was a, this was a defamation suit. I think a lot of members of the media like fell for that. You know, they thought that they didn't really have to pay as much attention to it because this, you know, is ultimately like a very arcane legal issue at play here that doesn't have anything to do with the larger issues that we all know this trial was ultimately about. So like, and, and I, and I don't really, I guess I do kind of fault them for that because anybody who had been following the conversation online would have known that that wouldn't be the case. But, but let me, I, let me actually, sorry. Let, let, I just want to ask you about that one point though. Like, um, and this is again, going back to like that chicken or the egg question that I asked before, but do you think that, that this is, uh, you know, an issue where, uh, where it was always like that? Or do you think that it just kind of like naturally evolved into that because of all of the different interests at play, right? Like where like it just kind of took on a life of its own or do you think that it was always like this and and like that's just the way that it was? I think it was always going to be like this to a certain extent. I think there were, there were external factors that made it a lot worse. The decision to broadcast the trial was one of them. Um, the decision not to sequester the jurors, as we've discussed, was another. Um, and also just the way that algorithms work. You know, the fact that this, I, I was talking to somebody earlier who referred to this as like the first TikTok trial. And, you know, obviously misinformation about the trial didn't just go viral on TikTok. It went viral on a number of different platforms. So to an extent, that's a mis- that's a misnomer. But it's also like, it is true that this is one of the first trials that I can think of where an algorithm basically dominated the, like a very irresponsible algorithm dominated the conversation, you know, like I, you know, the algorithm is what prioritized one, you know, and very heavily prioritized one side 
of the trial and one litigant's perspective, you know, at the expense of platforming facts or truth or, you know, responsible information. And we kind of all paid the price for it. So I think it was kind of all of those factors coalescing that made the discourse around this a lot worse than it already would have been. But at the same time, I mean, like I said earlier, it had been percolating for years it was just in sort of these pockets of the internet, you know, in these very, in these fandom corners and also, you know, these MRA corners. And it wasn't really until it got filtered down to the normies over, not even the past couple of months, like the past couple of weeks, honestly, that it really started to get dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah. I mean, like there was definitely like a change at that point. Um, and, and it definitely became like a much more, in your face, in your face kind of thing. Um, what do you, I mean, what do you think that, so do you think that there's going to be any difference in how social media companies no. like, manage this <laughs> stuff? Like, no, no, it doesn't sound like it. No, no, this is, this is like, all no, this I'm laughing because it's just, I'm, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because like, it's just so futile. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I've reported on this stuff for a couple years now on TikTok specifically and it's basically the same story, like, uh, over and over again. Like, I, I joke with my editor, you know, it's, there's this video or some meme that comes out that is just wildly wrong and wildly irresponsible and promotes all these, like, really dangerous ideas about this very socially important issue, and it goes wildly viral, and then TikTok takes it down, and it just happens again, like, the next week. I mean, this isn't specific to the Johnny Depp trial. This happened with, you know, the Wayfair sex trafficking conspiracy theory uh, a couple years ago, or conspiracy theories that women are getting abducted en masse in, in Target. I, I mean, there's just countless, countless, countless examples of this happening over and over again. And, I mean, just the, the only difference is that this time it happened with an extremely high-profile celebrity case that people were already kind of interested in and played on a lot of pre-existing narratives and anxieties about, uh, you know, women who lie about abuse. So it was just, it was just kind of like, I, to quote, I think you should leave, like a cosmic gumbo of you know, different fucked up elements of society kind of all coalescing together. Yeah, yeah. And like, um, it, it, it also... I mean, from their perspective, right? From the social media company's perspective, what's the, well, EJ, there you go. Um, from the social media uh, company's perspective, like why would they, why would they like say no to this? Like, Yeah, exactly, they, exactly. Right, because it, because it, it makes them money. It like gets them attention. Like it doesn't, it, it seems, it seems to me like they, they can say all that they want, that they, that they don't really want, um, this, I mean, it, to the extent that they even say that, but like, but, but the reality is that it's, you know, the Johnny Depp trial has gotten more people to go to TikTok than probably any other news story over the last six weeks. Right. So what would be their motivation? What would be, what, what motivation would they have as a company not to like encourage that kind of behavior? Right. They don't have any motivation. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like they, all they care about is engagement time and how long you actually stay on the app engaging with their content. And, you know, if that's happening, then they don't really care. 
about. I mean, I remember when I reported that story about the memes uh, that were circulating, making fun of Amber Heard's testimony. TikTok was like, "Yeah, this clearly violates." I actually reached out to them, thinking that it had violated one element of their um, community guidelines, which I, I won't get into the weeds of like what it was, but they were like, "Actually, it violates that and also another, and we're going to take this stuff down." But the second that I opened the app again, there were like thousands and thousands of new videos with this audio there. And they could have just eased, they could have taken the audio down. You know, they could have like nipped this in the bud and be like, it's not okay to make fun of people who allege sexual abuse. Like there was an easy solution to it. They just didn't want to do it. And I just think that's going to happen over and over again, because as you said, they have no incentive to fix this problem. How, how do you how do you respond to people who who say that it's a it's it's a free speech issue uh, for people to be able to do this stuff on these platforms? I know that this this is something <laughs> that people say a lot, so I'm I'm curious what your what 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 your response is to that because um, I mean I have my response, but I, I I'd like to hear yours. I mean it's such a I don't even feel like it's such a big issue. I don't even feel like the person to you know best be qualified to weigh on in in on it. Um, I mean my opinion is that. These are privately owned companies. They're privately owned platforms. They can do whatever the hell they want. They can kick off whoever the hell they want. You know, if they adopt community guidelines saying we're not going to allow redheaded people on this platform, I mean, that would be really stupid. (laughs) And they'd get a lot of backlash for it, but they are within their right to do that. So they are certainly within their right to say, actually, we're not going to allow massive abuse and harassment of a sexual assault survivor on our platform. Um, and they do say that. They just don't enforce it. I mean, that is kind of the thing, right? Is that like, like yes, like they do, they do say that. So when you, uh, when you choose to use like the app, I mean, this is the, like, this is part of my response to it. When you choose to use these apps, you're choosing to go by the standards that you've already been told um, they have. So if you're going to complain about it, like it's restricting your free speech, like that's fine. Like you have the right uh, to association. So you can associate yourself with a different app. But like, but you already agreed to these rules when, when you decide to use it. And, and like, and again, we're not like uh, the, the enforcement, as you're saying, is not something that's, uh, you know, uh, very uh, reliable, let's say. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I mean, this, this stuff is, is, is pretty basic, right? Right. And there are also plenty of other apps that, you know, if you want to spread hateful rhetoric, like there are plenty of other apps for you to do so, you know, like there's no shortage of platforms that, you know, I've reported on at length that welcome that. So it's not really a free speech issue if you have the right to exercise your free speech elsewhere, you know, like, I don't know. It's just it's a very boring argument to me. No, no, I hear you. I hear you for sure. Um so, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, just the last couple of minutes that we have here, um, you know, uh, what do you see kind of going forward, um, as far as like the way that social media is going to be deployed or deploy itself, um, mm-hmm. in service of these kinds of narratives and, and, uh, you know, because like I, I think that it's important to really emphasize a point that you've been making, which is that you know, yes, the Depp Heard trial is an example of this, 
but it's just part of an, a, a larger issue or, or a number of larger issues, actually. Um, and social media plays a large part in, in these like misogyny and attacks and targeted harassment, etc. Uh, what do you think is going to be like the ramifications of this as far as like the future of how this stuff is used uh, in order to promote these, like, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like toxic narratives? I mean, I'm a very cynical person. So like, I mean, my answer is going to be like pretty short, <laughs> like nothing good. You know, I just, as I said, like I see this happen again and again and again and again. This was just the first time I had seen it happen with a high profile sexual assault survivor. Um, this is the first time that I had seen platforms reward the shaming and vilification of, of a woman alleging that their ex had sexually and physically abused her. Um, and that's not to say that, that did, you know, that instinct didn't exist before. I was, I was talking to somebody else about the OJ trial earlier, and that's kind of the closest parallel that I can see here is the way that the media treated Nicole Brown Simpson, who fucking died, <laughs> like who was killed. Um, you know, after she died, people were, you know, coming out in droves to like blame her or to suggest that she had played some part in her abuse or like question why she didn't go to the police when she, you know, had a lockbox where she was documenting this abuse for years. Um, that, that's kind of the closest parallel that I can see. I can only imagine how TikTok would have exacerbated the shaming of somebody like Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, but yeah, I, Mo Mo Monica comes to mind too. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's also just like, it's so frustrating because we as a culture are at a point where we are sort of giving these women, you know, narrative, like, like redemption arcs, you know, the same types of redemption arcs, by the way, that Johnny Depp was like clearly trying to pursue by bringing this case to trial. Um, and, you know, we're giving them to like all of these previously vilified women like Monica, like Tanya Harding, um, like Britney Spears. And it's like, what's the point of doing that if we're not going to do it in real time? Like, what's the point of doing that if some, if people aren't going to step in and be like the way, you know, regardless of what you think about this woman and the claims she's making against this man, the way that we are talking about her is disgusting and we need to stop. Like, it's just such a simple it's just a, such a simple thing to say, but instead of anybody like coming out and saying it, like platforms are platforming this narrative. Yeah. Well, I, I, I share your cynicism. So, uh, you're, you're in good company here. Um, yeah, sorry. Easy, I didn't give you a, a better answer. <laughs> like a no, 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 that's answer. no, no, that's great. That's great. Um, uh, so I, I think we'll sign off here. Uh, do you want to let people know, uh, where they can find you, where they can find your work? Yeah, sure. I'm a senior culture writer at Rolling Stone. So um, you can find me on rollingstone.com. I'm on Twitter um, at EJ Dixon, E-J-D-I-C-K-S-O-N. And I also co-host a wonderful podcast with my amazing colleague, Brittany Spanos, um, about internet culture um, called Don't Let This Flop, where we talk about a lot of these types of issues that we talked about on here. Um, and you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. Excellent. All right. Well, um, for uh, if you're listening to this either live or on replay on the app, uh, please be sure to follow and subscribe uh, to the show so that you can get notified when we go live. You're listening on syndication on Apple 
or Spotify. Uh, also, please uh, be sure to follow, rate, do all the differently named stuff that's all the same on those platforms as well. EJ, thank you so much once again for joining us. Thank Thanks, you. everybody, uh, for listening in, and we'll see you uh, next week. Bye.